I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. In this week's episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with designer Kelly Cheng of The Press Room, who's dialing in to join us from her office in Singapore. So, Kelly, uh, welcome and thank you for joining me on the podcast. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about your education and what you studied originally before your career began, actually, because I read that you studied architecture. And I, I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about how and why you ended up moving into publishing and visual design and maybe talk a bit about some of the similarities that you see between those two fields and those two disciplines of design. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I think uh, the move into publishing um, first uh, was quite a kind of a, a natural one because, um, you know, in the 90s uh, when I was uh, going to the university, uh, Singapore was still not uh, really uh, providing so many options for a design education. So if you are a young, passionate uh, person who aspire to be a designer, you have uh, you you basically have only uh, one option if you want to do a degree, which is uh, architecture in National University of Singapore. You you do have some options in the polytechnics, uh, but those are mostly training you to be more like a vocational kind of. Uh, uh, employee. So I, um, at that point of time, my, I really wanted to kind of like my dream, my original dream <laughs> was actually to be a photographer slash publisher. Mm. Uh, my first love actually came uh, when I was really young, when I was seven and my dad bought me uh, an automatic Kodak camera. And as a young kid, I would go around snapping pictures of things and, and people and all that. And, uh, and the, the early encouragements really came from the family. Uh, they were saying, wow, you know, really nice. Can you take a picture of me and that? And that was really encouraging for a young uh, kid. So before I knew what design was, before I knew what um, architecture was and all that, um, I... I just really was in love with the camera. So growing up, I started to, in my teens, I started to buy a lot of uh, sort of uh, magazines. Uh, I particularly like those uh, indie magazines like The Face, uh, Ray Gun, uh, Bikini, things like that, which are uh, during that time really kind of edgy and uh, pretty punk rock. So I, I would look at the, the photo, photographs uh, and then as I was looking through the photographs, I started to fall in love with the layouts, the magazine design. And, and so this, this kind of like a dream to start my own magazines started to, to come into me even when I was in my teens. So, so when it came to 
you know, choosing the university, I was actually kind of like hoping that my parents would agree to send me abroad, you know, so that I could I could study something closer to a graphic design degree, a publishing degree, or a photography degree. But uh, during that time, my my parents were they, they were really not hot about the idea of me going away. Uh, first of all, my brother was already in the UK, so they said, uh, "No, you know, having one kid out there is enough. Not not to have two. And then the the second thing is also that I was extremely rebellious. So even in Singapore, I was always staying out late. Sometimes I don't come home, I go to my friend's place and all that. So they said, if we send you abroad, we'll never ever see you again. <laughs> so, uh, so I was really left with one option, which is to go to architecture school. And uh, so, uh, well, I take it because uh, at least I know that it would allow me to pursue something creative. So, uh, so I kind of went into architecture school without really knowing what to expect. Um, but, uh, but I was quite uh, surprised, you, uh, you know, when I started the, the first year, I, I almost fell in love with it immediately. Um, it, it was really like, um, it, it was mind-blowing for me because uh, coming from a more, uh, I mean, I've been always been academically quite strong. So, you know, I study literature, you know, science, arts, whatever, but I never really uh, know that design as an academic subject could be so enjoyable. So, uh, so, so as I go through the architecture education, um, I, I, it really, you know, it enriched me so much as a, as a creative uh, person. And I think it really, the six years of education uh, really provided me a very, very strong foundation. But at the same time, as I was enjoying the education of becoming an architect, uh, deep down in my heart, I, uh, you know, my dream of wanting to start a magazine, uh, it, never, it never went away. So, uh, so straight after I finished my architecture education, um, I kind of, uh, well, to cut a long story short, I, I thought that I should, uh, you know, give it a shot in publishing and I, I joined uh, an architecture magazine. And that was really the, the beginning of my publishing career. Uh, I, I kind of like interned myself there for two years to pick up the basics of publishing. And uh, and then in two years' time, I actually started my first magazine, which is Ish. Mm. I'm going to come back to Ish in a little bit, but uh, you know, I wanted to hear you know, I guess the transition from architecture to publishing because I I studied interior design before co-founding Design Anthology, and I I have some thoughts on the similarities or differences between the two, but I'd really love to hear from you, uh, you know, how you view that. Um, the similarities and differences. Yeah, yeah. between architecture and, and say publishing, did you find that it was an easy transition or did you, I mean, obviously they're very different in a lot of ways, but I feel in some ways there are some similarities and I wondered whether you agreed with that. I, I think that um, I, I do find, uh, personally, I, I really find that it's very interrelated and the foundation uh, that I have uh, cultivated in architecture school. Uh, actually, I think the most important part of 
that education is that it taught me how to uh, how to conceptualize and how to think uh, and how to actually solve problems so I think when uh, when it came to publishing um, it, it is it is more when you start your own magazine uh, which Susie you, are, you must be really familiar with um, it's not just about running the editorial alone right uh, you mm. also have to you know have a lot of sensibility dealing with people uh, running the business making the figures work and all that and I, I felt that uh, architecture kind of like uh, it trained us in so many ways right uh, we need to be good with numbers we need to be good with uh, structures with environmental control with people with art with you know so on and so forth so it kind of like trains your uh, right brain and your right brain and so I think in terms of the the the, the skill set beyond design there were a lot of things that I think were kind of universal if you uh, if you know how to manage design uh, then I think you can apply it in a lot of ways and the other thing that I find uh, very similar or, or rather I mean it could be my personal approach is that in architecture um, you know we always start with a grid in design um, mm. And then from the grid, you either kind of like break the grid or you follow the grid and you think in units and all that. So when when I went into publishing, it was quite funny because I, I was a self-taught graphic designer, uh, teaching myself at that time was page maker, which is in design today. Um, a lot of people like to set columns and, uh, and rows, uh, but intuitively, I, I was inclined to setting a grid instead of columns and rows, uh, which I think it's a, a quite unusual way of approaching uh, publication design if you compare it to one who is conventionally uh, trained in graphic design. They would immediately go in and set the rows and, and columns. And I think that, um, that my set, which came from my architecture background, kind of uh, uh, in a way perhaps give me a different approach uh, to graphic design because I don't see things in columns and rows. I see things in a much more organic way because the grid could be a 1mm by 1mm, it can be a 3mm, it can be 5mm, it is so fluid and it's uh, really uh, flexible which is which explains why my early uh, layouts were, uh, were, were really organic, you know, they, they, were, they look almost unruly uh, a little bit scary that I look back now. Uh, <laughs> it just kind of like lack <laughs> severely. I feel the same way about early issues of design anthology. If it makes you feel better, <laughs> uh, it's all a learning lesson for us. So uh, yeah. I had a lot of fun, uh, you know, breaking every rule, or rather, not knowing the rules and creating my own. So uh, that that was a, I think that was a good and bad thing of being trained in architecture. But I think as the days go by, you know, uh, it was very intuitive because if you have that kind of uh, design uh, intuition, uh, it was before long that I, you know, I start to observe like how, uh, how other magazines are doing things and all that. So I start to come, come to kind of find a voice of my own. Mm, that's such a great way of describing it. And I actually wanted to get you to talk about something else because I think the first time that we ever met was at a conference that I had heard you speak at. You presented 
represented, I think it was Maison Objet. I thought it was Singapore. Um, you corrected me and perhaps it was Paris. My memory is clearly not as good as it was. <laughs> but you presented and I, if I'm remembering correctly, you were talking about your approach to editorial design or book design. Yep. And yep. I think that you likened it to composing music, that there are sort of yep, high notes right. and low notes and there was a rhythm. And I remember sitting there, it was not long after we had launched Design Anthology and it was it was quite a powerful moment for me. And I, I wondered if you could perhaps talk a little bit about that because I just think it's such a, a beautiful and really poetic way to describe uh, part of what you do. Sure, thank you. And uh, so, yes, it's definitely Paris then. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, yeah, I was giving the keynote speech and uh, it was uh, it was really about the, the semantics of uh, uh designing publications. So, um, because I, I was trained in uh, playing the piano, uh, not a great player, but mm. yes, I play the piano. And, um, you know, so since young, I, um, I enjoy looking at the musical scores more so than enjoy playing the piano. So I think that was, <laughs> well, of course, my mom didn't notice, but I think it's a big hint to any parent that this, this person is more visually driven than, <laughs> you know, that she's good with audio. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I have always been very fascinated with, the, with how the musical scores look and uh, how we can actually control the rhythm, the beat and all that using the musical score. So you have like 2-4, you have 4-4, four, four, you have 6-8, you have, you know, all kinds of different beats. And then in each bar, you can arrange the notes in so many ways. But at the same time, they are so structured by the, the bars, right? And in each bar, you can have crescendo, you can have diminuendo. You can have a pause. You can. These things are all very, very fascinating to me, as a language. So as I went into design subsequently, a lot of times uh, I I couldn't help that to start to see um, designs in the same way that musical scores are structured. In fact, when I went into architecture school, when I had to start to create floor plans, when I first learned how to create floor plans, it was the first time that I realized there were so many similarities of creating a floor plan and creating a musical score. Um, when you go into a, a house, you know, usually you enter into a, a little holding area or vestibule, uh, that is very much like your, your intro you know, in, a, in a musical score. And then as you go into the main living room, you know, the, the main melody starts. And then as you go into each of the spaces, uh, we are guided by the grid that we created. So there is intrinsically a very clear structure when you create a floor plan. But at the same time, within each room, uh, you, can, you can create so many different things and each room can be different. But overall, they are still or controlled by a system. And so subsequently, when I started to create uh, magazines and books, and, um, and the first thing we do is, of course, you know, to take a, a pagination sheet and we start to craft out how we want to see the book unfold. And, uh, and this, to me, again, uh, it brings me back to my musical training. And 
I, I was able to feel that in each pagination, <coughs> which was uh, usually which is usually organized by uh, a signature of eight or sixteen, this is your bar. The eight or the sixteen is, is your bar, and then within that bar, with the eight pages or the sixteen pages, you can create so many different things. You can even create layers. So so that really guided the way of how I. I am able to craft a book usually uh, in a sort of a non-linear way. So I like to create my book in a few layers. Uh, they can all be controlled systematically by bars of eight, pages of eight or sixteen. But within the eight or sixteen, actually three narratives can be going on, and this can be differentiated by the color, by typography. Uh, by the way that you play around with your elements and then they would visually communicate to your reader which layer of narrative they should belong to. It is very much the same as making film. Uh, take for example, uh, uh, we all know Wong Kar Wai's movie are always very layered and you always have parallel narratives, three or four or five, you know. Um, mm. And these things always, they, they kind of like have a life of its own but at the same time, the whole movie it comes together uh, as a whole. So uh, a lot of times uh, when, I, when I create my book, I see it in that way. Uh, I like to create layers, but overall, they are all still controlled by a very clear uh, sort of musical structure. Yeah, so that's uh, what I you know, thought about books and that's music. That's such a fantastic description. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. I mean, look, you make you make editorial design sound so exciting. I, and there's been talk in the past, I think, of similarities between music and architecture. Other people have drawn those parallels, but I've never heard anyone draw them between that and editorial design. So it's so great to hear you explain that again. Thank you. Um, I want to fast forward to Ish because you you mentioned earlier that you launched your own magazine. It had obviously been a dream of yours right up until the point that you did it. Uh, but I think it's also worthy to note that it was Singapore's first independent magazine back in 1999, um, you know, which is probably seems less remarkable now because Singapore has quite a lively independent publishing scene. But to be the first at anything is remarkable. Uh, and as a young girl uh, in a scene where, you know, you're, you're the one doing it first, I'd really love to hear a little bit about, you know, what the greatest challenges were that you remember and, and perhaps what you would do differently now if you could do it all over again? Because I know from personal experience how hard it is to start a magazine yeah, from scratch. So <laughs> I salute you. But yeah, what, what do you remember from that time? Um, I, okay, I, I think that when I first started the magazine, I was uh, 27 years old. Uh, I, uh, I, I was I think I really was driven uh, purely 100% driven by passion. I have absolutely no freaking idea what I was getting myself into. Um, <laughs> I, I, I just knew like I have this dream and I have to fulfill it. So I, I knew everything about sort of, I mean, I would say that, I mean, as in I was, I knew that I could handle uh, doing the design, the layout, the, the writing, and, all that. and in fact, you know, just a, a small point is that for the first three issues of Ish, I, I basically did everything myself. 
from doing all the interviews, all the every single piece of writing, all the photos, and all the layout. And uh, I was so invigorated. Yeah, I was so excited. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. But the one thing that was lacking is I, I didn't know how to bring in the money. I didn't know how to sell ads. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was, uh, to be honest, you know, it, it really was the biggest challenge because you can you can sell magazine, but uh, but as you know, you know the, the the sale of the printed copies itself doesn't really bring in the dough. Mm. Um, you really need advertisers, so uh, that so that was the first uh, sort of tough lesson that I learned because the innocent me thought that ah you know if I sell enough magazines I could uh, kind of make it work, um, <laughs> and in those in those days uh, in the nineties. The, the lucky thing is that I think it was also kind of uh, I was quite I was really I, I really thank my lucky stars because I think it was right time right place it was just a bit before the uh, internet boom so people still do buy magazines and uh, mm. we were lucky to to kind of like be able to do a print run of 10,000 which uh, in, in wow. this day and age in Singapore it's impossible well I think for most magazines because as it is we are a small country but we were very lucky, you know, uh, it was just before the internet boom, so we were able to push that kind of numbers in terms of the sale of magazines uh, in, in the region and a little bit in uh, Europe and the States. So, so thank God, with that kind of number, at least we were able to kind of not make money, but at least sustain the magazine for a couple of issues. Mm. Yeah, so uh, until one point, of course, um, you know, uh, pretty much living from hands to mouth um, and uh, I realized that I, I have to find a way to kind of sell ads so um, I, I did I mean I had to kind of cold call the first few cold calls uh, to, to furniture companies furniture brands and all that uh, I told I tell you my, my heart was pumping like hell I, I think that is really something that I am so uh, I mean I'm, I'm normally a very gung-ho person in a lot of things that I do is like, I just do it you know uh, nothing to be fearful of but when I need to kind of like uh, ask people to give me money to ask people to advertise I feel really embarrassed <laughs> So, uh, so it was really tough. I, I had to thicken up my skin and to do it to kind of like sell the magazine and all that. And it, um, I, it made me realize it was really, really not easy to, to, you know, get people to come in with their money, you know, because they are kind of like sponsors. So mm. the first thing they would usually ask is, you know what, do I get in return? And... <laughs> And that is really the toughest question, isn't it, Susie? Yeah. I don't think, I was I mean, about to say, I don't think anything has changed since 1999 when it comes to that, oh. sadly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for me, I, I had to go at length to, to kind of like, because at the same time, I, I'm i not a good liar. I'm a very, very bad liar. So, when they said, you know what, do I get in return? So, I said, well, you know, you get branding, you get... Uh, you know, publicity, you get fame. And they said, oh, will it help me to sell more chairs? And I'm like, uh, I'm not really sure if I could achieve that. And then that, when that I say that in earnest, they will kick me off the showroom. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. So, uh, so yes. I, I would really say that that was my biggest challenge in all honesty. 
Yeah, I can certainly identify with that. I was in the same position when we first started the magazine. Luckily, I don't need to continue to do that now, eight years in, but yeah, I, I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> um, and so Singapore for me, you know, when before COVID, when we were traveling, you know, I, I love Singapore. And one of the things that I love about it is that there are still really great bookstores and newsstands there. And um, books actually would be one of them. Sadly, they don't have a physical store anymore. They're online. Um, Bashir would be another one. Um, you know, I think Hong Kong really lost its great uh, bookshops and newsstands. And I know that you were involved with Page One Group, so you probably mm. know about the demise. I think when Page One closed in Hong Kong, that was kind of the beginning of the end. And so I always loved going to Singapore to see new magazines. That was often where I would find them, English language magazines at least anyway. Um, but I imagine that it hasn't always been that way. So I, I wanted to ask you, you know, what it was like when you were growing up. You clearly did have access to some indie magazines from, you know, around the world. But, you know, what was it like? What was the newsstand like in Singapore when you were growing up? Huh, okay, so I get my stash from... Uh, if I'm in Singapore, from Tower Records. <laughs> ah. uh, I really miss Tower Records. Um, it, you know, yeah, it was uh, it was my regular hangout. So, I mean, as a teenager, I, I love music as well. So, I would spend like the whole day, you know, in Tower Records, just uh, going through the, you know, they have this kind of, uh, uh, where you can put on the headphone and try every CD. So mm. before the it, before the internet age, uh, the young kids today have no idea that we have to get our fresh dose of music by by physically going down to the store to test out, you know, these uh, albums and CDs. So uh, so yeah, so I used to go down to uh, Tower Records and uh, I would spend the whole day there, uh, just going through the CDs and also the magazine racks because they bring in all the cool sort of indie underground magazines so i got almost all my cool magazines uh, from there and tower records has a good uh, sort of uh, customer service so while all the magazines are wrapped up but you can bring uh, whichever copy that you want to have a browse uh, to the counter and they open it up for you and you can have a look there so uh, so that was how i kind of like maintain my regular dose of uh, magazines but uh, I was also quite lucky because I, I get to uh, travel quite a bit. So uh, so whenever I travel, um, especially when I go to the States, uh, I, would, I would buy like, lots of magazines there. And uh, the, the more indie, the better. You know, the ones that I've never seen in Singapore, I would, I would just grab like, you know, 50, 60 magazines back. And so my luggage, you can imagine, is always yeah. overweight. Yeah, so uh, so it wasn't easy, but you know, as young people, we always all have our sources. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I said it was a good tip, but is Tower Records still open? Ah, uh, Tower Records is uh, yeah, it's long gone. So as uh, with the Hong Kong, you know, there's a really a massacre of uh, bookshops here too. Yeah, so, it's very tough. Yeah, it's very very sad. So um, so the page one in Singapore, we we used to have a flagship that. That went down, and then um, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, smaller bookshops, uh, bookshop chains, they went down. Mm. Yeah, and then the, the independent ones, uh, as you just now mentioned, books actually uh, went down last year. And then mm. uh, another small independent uh, bookshop, uh, Epigram, uh, they 
they just went down like a month ago. Oh, um, no. Yeah, so Our it's really script sad. And Kinokuniya is still around. Thank God. So, so yeah. I think Kinokuniya at uh, Neon City kind of uh, monopolized the market now because mm. it's really the only uh, big bookshop that you could go to. And uh, thank God we uh, we have this design bookshop in Singapore called Bashir. Uh, mm. It is still, you know, holding the fort. Uh, it's been very <laughs> tough for them, uh, but they're still holding the fort. So uh, I, I would go down, you know, every now and then to like grab a bunch of things for them just, just to support them. Yeah, they're great. That's always on my list of places to go to when I'm in Singapore. Yeah, you know the <laughs> secret places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so obviously the newsstand and the bookstore kind of scene has changed a lot, not just in Singapore, but also clearly across the world, you know, selling books is, um, it's just becoming a very tough um, industry. Yeah. I, I'd like to hear, you know, how the Singaporean publishing industry has changed because as you've said, when you were at school, there wasn't really a graphic design or a visual design or a publishing course, but... There certainly are now, though, and, you know, there, as I said before, um, quite a lively, there was the last time I looked, quite a lively independent publishing scene. So, you know, what sort of changes have you noticed um, in the last couple of years? Um, I think uh, publishing and print uh, industry, uh, as we know, you know, uh, it is a sunset industry globally. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I think it it's not just Singapore. Um, when I first uh, started in uh, in page one, I mean, we, we we are a design publisher. We were, rather. Uh, we were a design publisher. And <coughs> we uh, in, the good, in the good old days, this is now impossible. We could have a design book title that we can sell up to half a million copies. Um, wow. It's amazing, you know. Because we, yeah. we would go to book fairs and, uh, and as you know, you know the, the main uh, way to make money through books is really to sell rights, territorial rights, mm-hmm. get, uh, that it's tied with language rights. So if I make a good uh, sort of design book, um, I can easily push 100,000 in Europe, I can push 100,000 in the States, 100,000 in China, uh, another 100,000 in one or 200,000 in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, usually we can even do like 50,000 in Japan. So mm. one good title, just one good title alone, we can uh, we can easily pocket half a million. And, and that is the kind of money we used to talk about, you know. And mm. in one year, uh, my KPI when I was in page one was to do 100 to 150 books. Um, we don't create original titles, so we can only sell these when we create the titles. So it is a two-way thing. Uh, we also buy rights of other books. Uh, we buy the rights for Southeast Asia. And then when we create our own titles, we, we sell back. So uh, the, the, well, the money aside, uh, for me, the, the beauty of this is that uh, in the pre-internet days, uh, publishing is really such an effective way uh, of an exchange of culture. You know, because here we produce content that is usually uh, Southeast Asian based. Uh, so we will bring this content to the West, and which is why it fascinates them, and, and they buy, you know, they buy the rights. And then we would buy, you know, uh, content that is related to Europe or to America, 
whatever, and then we bring it back here. So in those good old days, you know, uh, publishing was really the, the source of, uh, a, a key source in the exchange of cultural uh, and artistic creative information. But in this day and age, of course, with the, you know, with the internet, uh, you just need to go to Pinterest, you get whatever you want. Yeah? So it's, um, things have changed. Um, mm. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been tough. So, uh, so this, this we are talking about 20 years ago. And in about 12, 12 years ago, when I first started uh, the press room, which already, you know, we had uh, easy access to internet and all that, um, I, I kind of like position our company, the press room, as a, not so much as a publisher, but as a custom, custom publisher. So, uh, so people who still kind of like, you know, want to make a commemorative book or they want to make something special, they can still come to us, you know. So mm. uh, the, the idea is to kind of uh, carve a niche in, in providing a very specialized uh, kind of service. So, uh, so when I first started, we, we're still doing quite good, you see. So in terms of custom publishing, we can easily do up to, say, uh, as a small studio, you know, we, we can have 20, 30 books a year, which it's amazing. So, um, yeah. I, I mean, I was happy. And, uh, but if we compare to today, Susie, we are talking about if we are lucky, we can make maybe three to five books a year. Uh, <laughs> three to five. Yeah. Yeah, that is the kind of drop which is like five, six folds, you know. Uh, so I, I mean, the the thing is, of course, uh, this did not happen overnight. So uh, I mean, being mentally prepared along the way, you know, we try to provide services to do web design and all that. And in fact, in this day and age, um, I really try to encourage my clients to, uh, you know, to to explore the digital frontier, because. I also feel bad that if they put in like a hundred thousand to make a book and in the end we can only distribute five hundred copies. Uh that that is really sad because you do not achieve mm. the, the the intent of spreading this content and this information. So uh to me content you know, this sharing of content is so important. It is what makes the world evolve and makes us all a more sort of cultured people, you know, altogether. So, uh, so in order to kind of like to to make maximum uh, full use of this content, I usually say, why don't you, you know, make a website? We can create a website that is almost like a like a book for you, you know, uh, and people can can basically access this. Um, so yeah, so we've been trying to kind of like infect. Uh, encourage our clients to, to go digital as well. And of course, it was also uh, part of us. It's also going towards a more sustainability and responsible uh, way of, um, of viewing content so that we, we don't have so much wastage in paper and cutting down trees and all that. Mm. And given what you just said uh, just now and then earlier when you mentioned that the industry was a sunset industry, that's almost a complimentary way of describing what's happening. <laughs> I, I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think the future of, of magazines or print media looks like. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people talking about print being dead. 
do you believe that or do you have other thoughts on on what the future might look like? Uh, so maybe at this point, uh, I, I will share uh, a new project that I'm working on. <laughs> it's, mm. uh, it's actually a kind of a web magazine. Uh, it's called studiosml.net. Uh, it will be launched soon, in 1st September. Um, so this is actually kind of like an experiment that I am, I am working on. It's a self-initiated, self-funded project. Um, the, the reason why I went into this is uh, actually the, the reasons are many, there are many, many different reasons. Um, first of all, what drove me to do this is uh, last year, you know, during COVID, uh, we're all locked down and a lot of our jobs were uh, suspended overnight, you know, because uh, I think it's the first time that all of us face uh, a world pandemic of this scale and mm. a lot of our clients panicked as well. They're like, oh shit, you know, cannot have exhibition, cannot have this, cannot have that. So everything was mm. put on hold. So, uh, so yeah, it was tough. Uh, we were quite, uh, we were, we were left with like very few jobs overnight. So I, uh, I said at first, you know, it was from panicked to kind of like a kind of a very uh, calm state to ask myself that, hey, you know, I've been working nonstop for twenty over years, and uh, you know, I what do what do I uh, since now I have all the time in the world? What do I want to do for myself? You know, mm. uh, so I I ask myself uh, a, a a question that you know which which part of your career you know were you the happiest? And uh, and and. I really remember fondly the each days, you know, where I could create accurate content. Uh, I get to meet a lot of interesting designers. I get to tell their stories, and uh, I, as as I mentioned earlier, it really invigorated me, and uh, I I miss that feeling so much. And so uh, during COVID, I said, so you know, now I'm more established. You know, I have made a little bit of money. I, you know, what what's stopping me from doing something that made me happy so i decided that okay you know uh so you love magazine you love to create magazine you love to you know meet designers and tell stories so do it you know uh that was when i start to conceptualize okay so if i i, I will never go back to you know starting like each 2.0 because that that's done and you know it should just rest in peace so I ask myself, what kind of format should it take? What kind of uh, what kind of content should I put it in? Uh, what is the magazine of today for me? You know. Um, mm. So uh, the the answer was was quite clear to me that it has to be uh, in this day and age. People expect content to be free. You know, uh, I cannot force people to pay for this content. So hence uh, a web platform was the natural choice and in fact incidentally we also have a podcast channel for for this uh ah. so yeah so so i started to kind of work on that and start to conceptualize that and uh and so in terms of content i asked myself what do i want to put in this website right i uh should it be design should it be art should it be lifestyle whatever it is and uh and last year so during the covid i <clears throat> I also um, 
uh, experienced some sort of sad, uh, sad situations where some uh, older designers, the pioneer generation of designers in Singapore, um, uh, one of them got dementia, you know, and um, he's a uh, he's a very nice old man, you know. I I still remember fondly uh, how he uh, would actually hang out with us, you know, drink beer and uh, share with us design insights and all that. <coughs> he yeah, so he uh, he was sadly put in a nursing home now, you know, mm, and then so there sad. were. Yeah, and then there were also other older architects and uh, Carrie Hill, which you might uh, remember. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he passed on as well, yeah. And then uh, William Lim, who is, uh, you know, um, quite sickly as well. And it, it just I should decide that, that Singapore William Lim is different from the architect William Lim in Hong Kong. I don't know how they managed <laughs> yeah, to be thanks two. thanks for the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Singapore William Lim is uh, 85 yes. years old. So right. <laughs> um, it just struck me that, um, you know, for whatever that is worth, um, I actually had documented the last interview with some of these uh, uh, architects, you know, who are mm. now, uh, you know, gone or who are now uh, not able to, to, to speak in a logical manner. Mm. Um, and I... I, I mean, and I, I lamented like, oh, shucks, you know, but those interviews are so short, you know, they are all catered to like a four-page spread, 800 words, you know. They are not very in-depth. So I have the last one, but they're not very in-depth. And, uh, and so it just uh, struck me that, hey, I think this is what I should do, you know. And it will, I, will, I can kill two birds with one stone. Uh, mm. First, I could fulfill my dream of, you know, doing sort of like the magazine of the 21st century for, for, in my opinion. And the second thing is that I can start to document these people before they... So I came up with this slogan for Studio SML. It's a website that uh, will document before they shine and before they die. So <laughs> it's a little bit harsh, but yeah, that's what it is. Uh, yeah, oh, so, so the idea came about and, uh, and I start to kind of... Uh, of course, I start with the... I mean, I know so many designers. Everybody's, uh, most of them are very supportive and say, yeah, I, you know, come and interview me anytime. So we start to do that. And uh, it's been a year since we started the project and it's, uh, it's coming to uh, fruition soon. So uh, 1st September, we are going to launch this, uh, this uh, website, which is my sort of my answer to a magazine of the 21st century. Ah, well, keep us posted. Yes, I, I will um, share with you when it comes comes about. Please, yeah. So I have one final question for you, but before I ask you that, I wanted to acknowledge um, something that's quite significant. You were recently the recipient of the President's Design Award Singapore, which is quite an achievement. So I wanted to say congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Before we finish up, um, of course. So my final question is, you know, given that you are in the creative industry, what keeps you going every day? What keeps you inspired? What keeps you motivated? How do you, you know, on a daily basis, what keeps you going? Mm. Um, you know, thank you for this question because uh, it, it is actually a, a question that uh, that's very close to heart, um, especially since the 
you know, last year the COVID because um, I, I, I mean, really this, uh, nobody expected this global pandemic, neither did I, right? And mm. it gave me so much time to do self-reflection when the world just uh, came to a standstill. Um, and I ask myself, you know, that um, I have, uh, I mean, I have done a lot of design work uh, in my life, you know, and what, what would my next chapter look like, you know? Do I want to uh, just keep churning out more design work? Uh, do I want to do something else? Uh, do I want to kind of uh, do design in a different format? Uh, what uh, what do I want? You know. And um, and I think that actually uh, that self reflection. The the first thing was that it it gave me the courage to uh, let go of some of my stuff. <clears throat> so uh, of course with the pandemic pushing me to, to do it because we don't have so much job. So I decided to keep a small team, you know. And uh, so we are studio of five, by the way, now. Uh, a small mm. team. And I, I see my role much more clearly that I, I should be in more of a mentorship role and to try to find... Uh, hopefully, you know, a successor uh, for the press room, you know. Um, and that became sort of my uh, mission, yeah. So having downsized the studio, I also decided to take less jobs, you know, to, to really just... Uh, because when you have too many jobs, you, you can't really think sometimes and you can't really produce your best work. So mm. the decision is to do less jobs and to really, instead of me spending too much time to design these things myself, to give these opportunities to my younger team members, uh, but to really spend my energy to handhold them, to guide them, uh, to ensure that they, they will become better designers than me, because then that will also help in the whole design ecosystem of Singapore. Uh, mm. So I realized that I should be taking that role and instead of competing with the young designers to, to oh, you know, who is better? Of course I'm better. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, no, I mean, yeah, so a bomb mentorship role and also uh, hopefully a, a kind of a successor so that, uh, the, so that they can independently, ideally, you know, run the press room. And, uh, and I, I, can, I can be... You know, I can do a non-profit kind of, uh, in a more non-profit kind of thing. Like, for example, just running Studio SML. To me, that is a sort of uh, my giving back to the society because the, the end game is really having this amazing, huge archive of all the designers and their stories and their journeys. Uh, imagine 20 years down the road, I have hundreds of this archive. And this will be a gift to the design mm. community of the future. So uh, mm. I, would, I, I would really see myself in doing more sort of um, uh, non-profit kind of project, more giving back and all that. I, you, you see, the thing is also, I know this sounds so much like cliche, right, Susie? <laughs> I mean, people who are kind of like of a certain age, you know, they, they start to say these things. But I, I also come to realize the reason for this, you see. 
because you see, I mean, we we spend our life, you know, when we are younger and all that, we are chasing our dreams, you know, uh, we are waiting for things to happen, the next big things, you know, we are always looking for fireworks. But when <laughs> you, you know, when you are, uh, I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 50, right? Uh, you know, when you're 50... I'm a few years yeah, so younger, we... but yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm laughing you, you because realize... it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you realize that life does not have so many fireworks, you know, and uh, it really comes down to uh, what kind of... Uh, the, did you lead a meaningful life, you know? Did you uh, live every day to the fullest? Do you enjoy yourself? Are you a happy person, you know? Very, very basic uh, things of being a good human being. And I realized that at 50 years old, this is important because um, whatever fireworks that if you were chasing in your youth, they should have already happened. And from 50 years onwards, I think fireworks are not important anymore. But it's really to make sure that one day when, when I die, you know, uh, I have contributed in some ways to my people, to my nation, and that could maybe, you know, uh, leave some kind of legacy, hopefully, you know, uh, and that would be so much more meaningful, you know, than, uh, than just chasing the next fireworks and all that. Chasing fireworks. So, <laughs> That's a great yeah. way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. So That's, That's really, really powerful. The, my state of mind right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, yeah, you know, that's this is the second time now that I've sort of sat here in awe of what you're saying. And I, I think it's very um, apt for the time that we're in. Maybe I'm silly to be still chasing fireworks, but... Um, <laughs> but no, you're I still think, young. <laughs> no, I'm 45. I'm not that much younger than you. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think that that's, yeah, I think you're right. It's... There is a reason why our, our mindset changes as we get older. I'm not going to say old, older. Um, but that's really powerful. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. And it's been so lovely chatting with you. I, um, you know, I haven't heard a Singaporean accent for I don't know how long. I do know how long. It's been <laughs> since December last year. So I feel like I'm there. Um, so thank you. It was really great chatting. Yeah. Thank you so much, Susie. It's really been such a pleasure speaking to you.